It is January 1890, and Bill Brown is trying to decide which of his two feet he will put his one sock on. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. I've got a tiger by the tail that's plain to see. I won't be much when you get through with me. Well, I'm a losing weight and I'm turning mighty pale. Looks like I've got a tiger by the tail. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. No one ever called Walter Brown by his proper name. Bill Brown is what he was known as. He and his two brothers came to the high country of central Oregon in about 1880, and they ranged sheep. Basically, they would take their sheep wherever there was grass and water. They had about 500 sheep when they started. By 1889, they had about 10,000 sheep in their flock. Sheep herding in the high country was a tough business and 1889 was a tough year for the Brothers Brown. That year, a double winter hit, a real cold October and November. Then, a Chinook wind came and blew the snow away. However, that snowmelt was soon followed by another deep, lengthy snowstorm. The stocks were so weak from the first storm that they nearly all died in the second. Bill Brown was left, once again, with only 500 head of sheep. His brothers called it quits, but Bill stayed on. Trouble and me were old buddies, you see. I've stuck by him and he's a-sticking by me. Well, goodbye, honey, be thankful you're free. The sheep herding life was a solitary one in dramatic, lyrical Eastern Oregon. Bill Brown was drawn to this unsociable livelihood and enjoyed the loneliness and ruggedness of his chosen walk of life. He had said, Herding sheep gives a man a lot of time for reading worthwhile books and doing worthwhile thinking. Most sheep herders would employ sheepdogs to help them manage the herds, and Bill Brown was not an exception. He would leave the ranch with a few canine companions, but he never brought food for them. They usually turned back after a day or two, leaving their master alone on the desert. 
Bill Brown was also different from other herders in that he didn't ride a horse across the vast stretches of literally miles of scrub. Bill walked. He would travel light with no equipment to speak of, sleeping on the ground under the eastern Oregon stars, his overalls, coat, and hat the only accoutrements keeping him safe from the elements. Well, goodbye, honey, be thankful you're free And that you're not stuck with old trouble in me Eccentric is a word that does not bring justice to the lifestyle that Bill Brown chose to lead. One story has it that times were so tough that Bill Brown only had one sock and he wore it on alternating feet on alternate days. But poverty was not the only excuse as to why Bill chose to lead such an odd life. Bill drank coffee on rare occasion, and when they were available, he drank a glass of two beaten raw eggs. He once told a man, I don't smoke, chew, or drink, but I have drunk a pound of coffee in my life. He never swore either. Instead, it seems that shucks, confound it, was one of his almost patented phrases. Beware of a tall, dark stranger If he comes Bill Brown was fortunate, or unfortunate enough, to live in interesting times in the state of Oregon. As the population of the state and the U.S. began to grow, even the vast openness of eastern Oregon began to get a little crowded. By the 1890s, rangeland east of the Cascades had become a curious battlefield between sheep herders and cattle ranchers who felt that the sheep ravaged the grassy areas that their beef stock needed. In 1896, Central and Eastern Oregon cattlemen established a group called the Sheep Shooters Association to protect against these grazers from encroaching upon these ranges. These fellers just plain up shot sheep dead to protect the grazelands for their cattle. Other permutations developed, but the Oregon sheep shooters were responsible for the deaths of up to 10,000 sheep between 1896 and 1906. The largest slaughter occurred by Benjamin Lake, where 2,300 sheep were shot or clubbed to death in April of 1904. Bill Brown was a victim of this range war, of course. In February of 1903, Bill received word that some of his sheep had been slaughtered. He immediately set out for the scene, declaring, Confound it! Those boys got into my sheep last night and killed about 400 of them. 487 head had been killed, and while Bill Brown looked for clues for a while, no one would tell him anything of substance. It was a tough fucking business, sheep herding in the high country. Exposed to the elements, the ravages of the wild, and the trickery of other men 
who straight up shot your sheep and then claimed ignorance. But Bill Brown kept on with his flock, and soon his luck turned a bit. He filed for water rights and got more sheep and hired more herders and started moving into horses. Eventually, he amassed 40,000 acres in four counties and had more stock than anyone in Oregon. At one point, he was reported to have about 25,000 horses, more than anyone west of the Rockies, appropriately earning him the moniker of Horse King of the West. He was also known as the Range King, the King of the Desert, and the Horse King that Walked. Bill did pretty well for himself on American wars, selling quite a few head in 1898 for the battles in Cuba and the Philippines. In 1916 and 1917, he rounded up 10,000 horses, and the U.S. Army came out and selected a 1,000 of them, paying $95 on the head. But as huge as this payout seems, he was still even deeper into the sheep. Bill Brown was doing real well for a man who formerly had only one sock. No, thank you, not today. First thing is matrimony, next thing is alimony. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, I'll be on my way. As successful as he had become, Bill Brown still preserved his patented eccentricity. A rancher that worked for him said that the strongest language he ever heard Bill Brown say was, Mortally certain you shouldn't do that. If Bill had it with one of the hands, he would just say, You're fired, and write him a check. Yarns have been spun about these checks, and they are noteworthy. See, Bill Brown would just write the check on whatever was available. On the high desert, sometimes he would write them on the back of a label from a tomato can or a corn can or even a piece of board and send the hand on his way. The checks were always honored by the bank. In the summer of 1912, Oregon's original maverick governor, Oswald West, set off for the Western Governor's Conference in Boise. Rather than take the train, the governor boarded his black mare and headed off to Idaho. He took a left at Prineville and headed north to Wagontire as he wanted to see the legendary Bill Brown. He arrived in the afternoon at the Brown Ranch and told the help he was looking for room and board for the evening and inquired with the housekeeper where he could find Bill Brown. He was directed to a field where Brown paused in his hay cutting as the governor of the state of Oregon introduced himself. The fact that such a public figure of high standing was present had absolutely no effect on Brown. He did, however, agree to host his governor. Decades later, West recalled that the ranch house was large and roomy, but Bill's bedroom, of which I was to become a joint occupant, was quite small, 
and hardly afforded room for its double bed and a desk which occupied one corner. When it came time to retire, I found that Bill, my sleepmate, had been wearing red woolen underwear, it was a hot July, while making hay and had perspired quite freely. Bill's charge was fifty cents from a supper, fifty cents for bed, fifty cents for breakfast, and fifty cents for my saddle animal. After breakfast, I mounted and headed for Idaho. But the interesting times in which Bill Brown lived began to get even more interesting still. And alas, Bill was not prepared for the changes that were coming to Oregon and the West. A recession in the early 1920s and the expansion of the automobile dropped the price of his horses all the way down to 5 to $10 a head. The price of sheep dropped as well. Theft from some of his less honest employees took their toll as well. Bill Brown borrowed quite a bit of money to stay afloat, and the debt consumed him. Eventually, Bill Brown went broke. The story of Bill Brown marks a transformative time in the Beaver State's past. Bill straddled two distinct eras in history and was a rebel in both. In the time of transportation by beasts of burden, Bill Brown chose to walk. Even though he had the choice of literally any of the best horses in Oregon, this real Oregon maverick preferred the pace of his own two feet. Ultimately, the era of motorized transport would be his undoing, and the mass-market appeal of the automobile killed his fortunes as Oregonians foretook feet altogether and took to the road. But Bill Brown also lived in a state that was quite different from the Oregon we enjoy today. The story of Bill Brown is illustrative of how different Eastern Oregon was then and how disparate it has been from the western side of the state. It was a land of cowboys battling sheep herders in a straight-up, all-out war. There wasn't any of this blues festival in Joseph business or 18 holes at the Buffalo Peak Golf Course in Union. In our time, residents from the west of the Cascades can literally drive across the state in a day. You can get as skinny of a soy latte with extra whip in Baker City as you can in P-Town. And while Eastern and Western Oregon are two distinct environments, the differences are nothing like the Oregon we would have experienced in Bill Brown's day. Brown helped open up our great state, on foot no less. And though the connecting of East and West in Oregon was eventually his undoing, we owe him a debt of gratitude, to which I can only imagine Bill Brown would reply, Aw, oh, shucks. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at ORHistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, 
pick up Oregon history merchandise, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. You can also support the podcast. Go to orhistory.com and click donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And hey, be sure to join us for two kick-ass Oregon history events coming up soon. First, on January 31st, 2013, join us on our Treasure and Loot Double Decker Bus Tour, co-sponsored by our kick-ass friends at Double Decker PDX, Double Mountain Brewery, and Eastside Distilling. We will visit several locations of fabled treasure, stop in a few watering holes, and conduct a drunken scavenger hunt as we enjoy adult malted beverages. All for less than 30 bucks. The only history tour in Portland that could make you fucking rich. Visit our website, orhistory.com, and get a ticket today. Also, February 19th at 7.30 at the Jack London Bar, it's Oregon's birthday party. We'll reveal our kick-ass Oregon history diorama winner. Hear talks from ribald historian Doug Kent Crispin, Finn John, and Joe Streckert. We'll have cake, and we'll round out the evening with a film viewing of a secret Oregon classic film. You won't want to miss it. So, join us February 19th at 7.30 at the Jack London Bar for Oregon's birthday and sign up on the website to be on the treasure tour. Just be careful around the fantan table and Mr. Kank Crispin. He tends to rip the arms off of droids when he loses. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass! It takes people like you to make people like me From the great Rocky Mountains to the shores of the sea from the sands of the desert to the tall oak tree It takes people like you to make people like me Though skies may turn gray for a while You can't brighten each day with a smile And wherever you go, I want you to know It takes people like you to make people like me It takes people like you To make people like me From the snows of Alaska Down to sunny Tennessee And from New York City To Los Angeles It takes people like you to make people like me Those skies may turn gray for a while You can't brighten each day with a smile 
takes people like you to make people like me. It takes people like you to make people like me.